I'm happy to be here today, and I'm going to talk about uh, some of the ten perfections. I started at the beginning of the month at IBMC talking about the first three, and now I'm going to talk about the second four. And I plan on posting these on iTunes as a podcast, so if you missed the first one or you missed the last one, you'll be able to catch up on that and uh, hear what I had to say. So this is my interpretation. You know, I always have to qualify that because sometimes they expect, you know, uh, the Buddha speaking and then it's just me. After reading what the Buddha said and other people said and then my interpretation, it goes through my filters and out through my mouth. So what are the 10 perfections? Well, you know, the Theravada tradition has 10, and the Mahayana tradition has 6. So I'm going to continue after I'm through with the 10, talking about the 6. So this is going to go on for months. It's really exciting. (laughs) So the perfections are, number one, the perfection of giving. Number two, the perfection of morality. Number three, the perfection of renunciation. Number four, the perfection of discerning wisdom. Number five, the perfection of energy. Number six, the perfection of patience. Number seven, the perfection of truthfulness. Number eight, the perfection of determination. Number nine, the perfection of loving kindness. Number 10, the perfection of equanimity. So just a quick overview of the first three to catch you up. So the perfection of giving, called dana. And in the Mahayana tradition, it is also the first perfection, something we need to practice. Now, what I've come to understand about perfection is that it just sort of happens once you've done your practice, and then your practice turns into performance. Now, if you don't really catch that concept of practice and performance, think of a musician who for weeks, months, or years practices his instrument. And then one day, out of the clear blue, that practice turns into performance. The instrument seems to play itself. And I found that to be true with the ukulele, that I practiced and practiced, and one day, it turned into performance, and nobody was impressed. (laughs) But it was a ukulele after all. I didn't expect anybody to be impressed, but I was surprised when it happened. Now, after the performance occurs, then one continues with performance, and then it becomes perfect. But it's really hard to discern perfection, you know? And oftentimes, if something isn't perfect, just good enough, we try to make it perfect. And I have found myself time and time again trying to make good enough perfect and ruining the whole thing. So sometimes good enough is good enough. You don't need perfect. But we're going to talk about the perfection of giving. I started giving to vending machines. Now, you might not consider that an advanced kind of giving, but I would leave the change behind in the vending machine 
and not care who found it or how they spent it, which really allowed me to give a quarter or a dime or a nickel almost every day, as long as I was using a vending machine. When it comes to giving actual money to actual people, it's a little more difficult because sometimes you want them to spend it the way you think they should spend it. Now, I was at the Ralph's the other day, down on Vermont Avenue, and there was this guy with a dog on his shoulder. And I thought, that's interesting, because he was begging, and he, the dog got your attention, and then his hand, you know, and I said, I'll give you dog some food. I'll go right now and buy it and give you dog some food. He says, you know, the dog has plenty of food. I need the food. I'm going, well, should I give him the food? So I gave him a dollar, you know, and thought, okay, I'll just let it go. I don't care how he spends it or what he spends it on. If he wants Hostess cupcakes or a sandwich, it's going to be up to him. But I felt enthusiastic about giving the dog some food because the dog has this certain equanimity. You know, they beg once in a while, but they beg in such a cute way. <laughs> and, and you know they're going to eat everything you give them until you give it to them in a consistent way, and then they get picky and only eat the stuff they want. But that's sort of how life works. So then I thought to myself, well, what is the highest form of giving? How can I practice that? Well, I'm doing it right now. The highest form of giving is to give the Dharma, whatever that means to you. You know, and of course, to the Buddha, it meant his understanding of the true nature of reality and a way to end your suffering. And that's what he was giving you, a way out, a way to find happiness and peace for the rest of your life. The second one is morality. Well, for a Buddhist, this is really easy to understand because the morality of the five precepts. And the five precepts are training precepts which allow us to be more skillful and have less suffering and cause less suffering to those around us. So we take the five precepts and we go, okay, today I'm not going to kill anything. Today I'm not going to steal anything. I'm not going to involve myself in sexual misconduct. I'm not going to speak unskillfully. And I'm not going to consume intoxicants. Well, you know, uh, the last one's a tough one because this is L.A., and sometimes you just need to get high to get through the day. But if you practice meditation and you're striving for mental clarity, getting high is not the answer because it steals all your wisdom. You become more stupid than you were before and cause great suffering to everybody, including yourself. But I found killing to be rather difficult, especially in spring, because we got the cockroaches and the ants and the spiders, and we have all these little creatures, and they always invade our space without permission, and we just say, you know, my life would be so much better if I didn't have a cockroach in it. And so maybe I can just kill the cockroach and make my life good again. Well, you can do that, but there's plenty more cockroaches that take its place. So you can catch them and take them outside, and reflect on how valuable life is, even to the cockroach. Now, at the Zendo where I live, we have a second floor where all the bedrooms are, and there's a stairway, and right in the corner of the stairway is a spider, Daddy Longlegs. And he's, he's, he's got his little web out there. And I see him every day a few times, because I go up and down, up and down, and there he is, you know, waiting for some food. 
And so far, I haven't found any food in this little web. So one day, I found a dead fly. And I picked it up, and I put it in his web. And he woke up and ran over to it. And he's a little bigger and fatter today because of that fly. So I look at this as practicing the five precepts. Rather than not killing, I am encouraging life. And the fly was dead anyway and made a good meal. So giving flies to spiders gets rid of the first precept of generosity and the second precept of not killing. So our practice does not need a church or a temple or a meditation center. It needs us to be aware that there are things we can do every day in every situation to continue the practice into performance into perfection. The third one is perfection of renunciation. And I was telling Holly just earlier that I am practicing it. My TV died. All of a sudden, the screen just went black. The sound was still there, but there was nothing on the screen. And I punched all the buttons, unplugged it, nothing, nothing. I thought, oh man, you know, I've only had it four years. It's almost brand new. And there was a 32-inch TV. And I just live in a small room, so it sort of fit almost against the wall and took up the whole place. So I'm going to buy a new TV, I said. So I went online. I went to Best Buy, and they had one, a little 24-inch TV with like a 23-inch screen. It's a cute little guy, you know? And it doesn't take as much of your attention as the big one, because the big one, you sort of like were part of it. This one, you sort of have to just look at it. And I got it, and it's really nice, and it has all sorts of things you can plug into it, like, you know, USB and the whole thing. And it's, so there I am, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? People are often curious about a monk's life. And I've had them ask me directly, do you watch TV? And now I can say with all truthfulness, yes, just a little TV. <laughs> So renunciation is about giving up stuff in the beginning, but it doesn't stop there, because if you don't give up the desire for the stuff, it just sort of reappears all by itself. So when I moved into the meditation center, I got rid of my guitar and my keyboard and my mandolin and my banjo, and everybody got a really good deal. I thought to myself, I'm free now to go to the meditation center and find enlightenment. I will not be distracted by musical instruments. And if you were to look in my room today, you would find ukuleles and a banjo and two guitars. And somehow, I didn't give up my desire. I didn't even think about it. I thought just giving up the stuff was enough. It's not. So now, I look at my stuff, my musical instruments, and sometimes I just give them away. I say, here, have a ukulele. You know, oh, thank you so much, but don't you want one? Well, I've got three, you know, and, and the older I get, the less I'm inclined to play them, and I bet you'd like to play this ukulele. So it's a way of practicing renunciation. It's a way of practicing generosity. It's a way of practicing kindness and encouraging people to perhaps play the ukulele and have a wonderful life. Because there's nothing better than playing the ukulele on a dreary overcast day. It just makes your heart smile. 
Now, this next one, number four, the perfection of discerning wisdom. Man, this is a big topic because there's all sorts of kinds of wisdom in Buddhism. And not every tradition of Buddhism has the same kind of wisdom. So let's start at the beginning. The wisdom found in the Four Noble Truths. This is just a wise teaching. It was the beginning of the Wheel of Dharma, allowing us to find out that we suffer. Now, I didn't suffer until I came to Buddhism. I thought I had a good life until I came to Buddhism. I thought everything was fine until I came to Buddhism. And then people kept telling me, no, you are suffering. And one day you'll be dead and there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm going, wow, I'm really getting bummed out with this Buddhism stuff. But I kept listening, and that was just the first part. The first part of the wisdom was to know that we have an issue, that we have a problem. The second part of the wisdom is there's an answer. You don't have to be a victim and accept it. You can actually do something about it. And that's where it starts. It starts with understanding that the truth the Buddha was talking about is the truth found on the inside, not necessarily on the outside. And if you ask people about truth, they will point it out to you, and they'll show you where all the truth lies. But in reality, it's their truth. It's what they've come to understand as being true. It may not be your truth. And then there's relative truth and there's ultimate truth. And you don't want to get involved in category error and think relative truth is ultimate truth. Because ultimate truth can't really be talked about. It can be felt, it can be experienced, it can be known, but sometimes it can't be understood because it's beyond duality. You go, wow, I wish I could share this with people. But you can't share it with people because you have to share how you understand it and let them figure it out for themselves. Now, the last time I spoke here, there's a woman in the back, and she asked me about the Sangha. What do you think about the Sangha, Kusla, she said. And I, and I told her what I thought about the Sangha. I defined it, and then I also had some reflections on the Sangha. And then I said, well, I hope that was good. What do you think? She said, well, I think that's just what you think about it. <laughs> she was right. It was me thinking about it and talking. But I was the one who was asked. So what's the ultimate truth about Sangha? Well, you know, it doesn't really exist apart from everything else. Just like us, we don't exist apart from everything else either. But in a relative way, Sangha is very important. It's one of the triple gem, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Sangha can also be looked at as the novice monks and the fully ordained monks, the novice nuns and the fully ordained nuns. That's the original Sangha. But we have expanded the definition to include people that practice Buddhism or take the precepts or have a Buddhist name or just like listening to the Dalai Lama. They're part of Sangha too. So Sangha has a relative truth and it has an ultimate truth. And the truth that you think it is is the most important truth because you're going to have to work with a concept. And truth turns out to be, for the most part, a concept. Now, people ask me about my political viewpoints, and I don't like to share those because my political viewpoints are relative truth. Just the way I feel about stuff, the way I was brought up, the way I look at the world. 
But it's just me. And if I were to express my truth politically to you, what you would hear is a bunch of opinions, which probably wouldn't be useful to anybody except me, because that's sort of how I look at it. So when I go on Facebook and look at all the political postings, I'm just, I just smile, and it inspires me to almost want to post something, but I don't, because I know half the people will like it, half the people will hate it. And I don't want to go there. I want everybody to smile with my postings. So that's what I do. I, want, I posted just yesterday, it was, you know, uh, wisdom doesn't necessarily come with age. Sometimes age shows up alone. There you go. Man. Now that's a good post, because everybody can relate to that. So what is the truth found in Mahayana Buddhism. This is the best truth of all, I think. Emptiness, shunyata, not self, not soul, not anybody. Man, that is such powerful form of truth because all of us can relate to wanting to be somebody. And for the first half of our life, we were trained by some of the best people in the world. Number one, our parents. Number two, the school system. Number three, the peer groups. Number four, our employers. Our employment trained us, you know, to, to be good workers, to abide by the rules, to produce a lot of stuff. Okay, so there we are. We're just really working hard to be somebody. And then Mahayana Buddhism says, man, you are nobody, not even man or woman. You're just part of the giant, infinite amount of parts and pieces, one of the cogs that's interconnected and interdependent with everything else. You, you cannot stand alone and apart as an individual. It's all an illusion. But then the illusion kicks in because we got to be somebody. We gotta be somebody. If we're pulled over and show our driver's license, we gotta be that picture. Or they're gonna take us in and say, this guy doesn't think he's the picture. We need to work on him. He needs some psychological evaluation. And you might say, no, I don't. I'm just a Buddhist. And I'm following Zen. And we don't exist in the way we think we do. And neither do you. And that's where they lock the door. <laughs> So there's all kinds of wisdom, relative and ultimate. There's all kinds of truth, relative and ultimate. And it's up to us as a Buddhist to define ourself, ultimately to let that go. And not be anything in particular while you're alone, but to be something very particular when you're in a group because other people need to be able to relate to you and understand who you are. I had somebody the other day ask me, did you name all the cats you feed? I said, hell yes. How else would I know who they are? <laughs> you know, names are very useful. It gives us a chance to understand something outside ourselves. So there we go. With truth, what is your truth? What is your wisdom? Panya. So the wisdom of vipassana, meditation, is simple and easy 
to hear but not necessarily understand. It is all things are impermanent, and Nietzsche. All things ultimately create suffering, Dukkha, and nothing exists in the way you think it does, a Nietzsche. And the Mahayana went a little further and became more abstract and poetic, and they said nothing exists at all apart from the interconnection and interdependence. Everything is conditioned. Nothing stands alone. And so as we work on this wisdom aspect in both Theravada and Mahayana, we're gaining deep insights into the true nature of the world and less inclined to grasp and hold on to and cling or push away. We are now standing in the middle with a little more equanimity going, isn't that interesting? And we name it and we give it a value and then we go get a cup of coffee and life's okay. Okay, perfection of energy. Man, this is tough. You know when you get to be 70? Even if you're not 70. It's just the energy doesn't last as long as it used to. You know, and those naps in the afternoon become almost a necessity because you can't make it through the night without the nap in the afternoon. And sometimes if you're really lucky, you get to take a couple naps during the day. So sometimes I get up at 4, 4.30, you know, do some stuff, take a little nap about 10, go out and feed the cats, then take a little nap after lunch, and I'm ready for the evening. No problemo. But it takes a lot of rest as you, see, as you age to keep up a constant stream of energy occurring. Now, in Buddhism, the energy is looked at in two different ways. It's looked at as a physical energy and a mental energy. And, and the physical energy requires us, if we want to keep it at a good level, to eat correctly, to maybe take our vitamins and probiotics, and, and to get a little bit of rest. So the body can continue its practice of Buddhism because the energy is all about the Buddhism, you know? I need to practice, and I need the energy to do that. Now, I made some notes on this. Uh, we also, okay, the energy can be looked at in this way. It's zeal and enthusiastic effort. Now, I don't know about you, but when I found Buddhism, I was too enthusiastic because I could hardly wait to tell people what I've been reading and understood to be true. And they didn't want to hear it over lunch. They just wanted to eat. And I'm talking about sutras, and I'm talking about how the Buddha lived and what he achieved and nirvana. And of course, I couldn't speak about it very well because I had just come to it. And they would ask me some questions, and there'd always be a point where I had to stop because I didn't know what the answer was. Now, if you do it for 20 or 30 years, you don't stop as frequently as you used to, and you can go a lot longer before anybody asks a question that might get you stuck. But in the beginning, I could hardly wait to share with everybody this truth that I had found. And everybody just sort of walked away. And sometimes I never saw them again. <laughs> you know? So I realized that enthusiasm has a limit. It's good because it gives you sort of the energy necessary to move forward, and the zeal is sort of a good feeling, but there comes a point where you just have to shut up and use the energy in a nonverbal way to continue your practice. 
Now we can break it down into three aspects in this energy virya perfection. Character, spiritual training, and a benefit to others. So character. What kind of character is necessary on the Buddhist path? It's sort of the character that's necessary to stick to it and not give up and not feel like a victim and not get caught in some, you know, it's never going to happen for me. I've been meditating for 30 years and I'm still the same jerk I was 20 years ago. And then you just sort of give up, you know, and, and that's not good character if you want to be a Buddhist. There's a commitment to this path. There's a commitment necessary for it to work for you. And you're not going to see results. You know, you might see some results, but the kind of results we're talking about are internal and subtle and not obvious even to you, let alone anybody else. Okay, so you sort of go, well, but how about the goal? Isn't the goal important, nirvana? It's not important. The goal is less important than the path because the path is what you do and the goal is what you think the end is. And think is the important part because it's not going to be ever like that. And I don't know if you've gone like on a vacation or gone to a party and you had high expectations and you were completely disappointed because it wasn't fun or exciting at all. And then you said, well, why did I think it was going to be that way? Well, you got the flyer that said this is going to be the best party ever presented to humankind, and you could hardly wait to go there. And there was like a $50 entrance charge, and they ran out of beer, and everybody was just sort of talking nonsense. And you thought to yourself, this is the best party ever? That was your goal, to experience the best party ever. Wow, so disappointing. So we're going to get really disappointed when we don't acquire all the wisdom we think is necessary to understand the Dharma or to acquire the skill necessary to sit for a half hour or an hour or two hours without moving around and wishing you weren't there. That stuff takes time and may never happen. But the momentum has been started and you are moving in that direction. And the idea of practice is to practice anyway. You know, even if you can't play that ukulele really good for the first year, in the second year, you'll be better. And in the third year, you might even be good. So it's sitting with it and not expecting anything to happen and being surprised when it does. So I tell people about suffering. I said, you know, you should not be surprised if you experience suffering. You should only be surprised if things are going well. Because that's not generally how it works. Most of the time, things don't go well. And we're compensating psychologically, saying, well, it'll be better tomorrow. It may be worse tomorrow. After you get to a certain age, you're going to have the best day you've ever had today because tomorrow you're going further downhill than you were today. And in a year from now, you may not even be able to think and multiply, and divide, and add. So if you can do that today, you're doing great. You know? So don't be surprised when things go wrong. Be surprised when things are working out just the way they're supposed to. And say to yourself, what the hell? I didn't plan on this. I planned on suffering today. Because that's what the Buddha talked about. <laughs> now we go into the character necessary, Spiritual training. There's a couple levels of spiritual training. First level is sort of like reading. 
And gosh knows there's a lot to read now. If you get a Kindle and you go on Amazon and do Buddhism as a category, you are going to be reading for the rest of your life. It's just amazing what's available. And all this stuff doesn't make you a better Buddhist. It makes you a more knowledgeable Buddhist. But then you realize even more so how difficult it is to achieve nirvana. Because everybody that's written these books have not achieved nirvana. Now one of them. Some may claim getting close, but that doesn't count. And if you did achieve nirvana, you probably wouldn't write a book. Because what's the point? You know? You're going to write down how you did it, and nobody's going to understand it, and they're going to sell like 10 copies, and so, okay. So, but that's where we start. We start reading. And for me, I was really stupid. I was really ignorant when I started reading. I couldn't figure out what the sutras were talking about. So what I did is I read stories about people going to Zen monasteries and read what they thought was happening in the Zen monasteries, which gave me sort of an idea, a more clear idea of what I might expect if I ever got to a Zen monastery. But when you read enough of those autobiographies about going to the Zen monastery, you don't want to go. Because you're sitting there 15 hours a day, you're eating rice. You've got to wash your bowl. You can't sleep. You're just working all the time. I'm thinking, I'm not doing that, but it's a really good story. I'm glad I read it. Then I advanced to commentaries. Now, these are people that write commentaries on what they have read and understood to be true. So I could understand the commentaries because there was a lot of opinions and a, a lot of stories that went along. And so the commentaries was a good resource for me for the five, six years. Then I started reading, reading the actual sutras in English, translated. So I'm not sure if this was the actual sutra or not, but I could read it and sort of understand it for what it was. And then people would always say to me, do you speak Pali? Do you speak Sanskrit? Can you read Sanskrit? Can you read Pali? No. Well, how do you know that's the right translation? I don't. But does it matter? You know, does it really matter? Do we even know if that's what the Buddha said and was written down? You know, I think it was. I have confidence that it's pretty close. But we're in a different time and place. So even though he said one thing, we may interpret it differently in 2018. And so you go, okay, grain of salt. Yeah, it's pretty close. Gives me some ideas. I don't, I'm not, it's not God speaking. It's not the Bible. It's a bunch of guys who wrote this stuff down in caves because they had nothing else to do. So, okay, so you read it. That's where you start. Then you finally get into the practice, meditation, retreats, can hardly wait. You're going to get the real stuff now, direct experience, and it's terrible. I had the worst times in the first few retreats I went on because I was not prepared for not doing anything. And I sort of toughed it out and used every muscle in my body to sit up straight and not move. And I was like totally exhausted and totally in pain. And I'm going, wow, this is a tough practice, this spiritual practice, you know. It's not like just you praying to somebody. It's like you're sitting there, working hard, sweating. The Zendos never had air conditioning. I don't know what the deal is. Or heat. You would be too hot and too cold, and your knees would hurt. And then it would be time to go to sleep, and you'd sleep in the Zendo and put your head on a Zafu that somebody had sat on for 20 years. 
and you go, ah. Oh. But it was the most comfortable pillow you've ever had because you were totally wiped out. So the practice allows us to continue understanding the spiritual path. And then finally, benefit to others. I didn't have to worry about that. I don't know how to be a benefit to others, but people kept inviting me to be a benefit to others, and all I had to do was accept the invitation. So a year at state prison, five years in juvenile hall, seven years with the police department, 12 years at UCLA. All this stuff was being a benefit to others. Now, the problem with being a benefit to others is you never know if you are. You just show up, and you do the stuff, and then you leave. And then you show up again, and you do the stuff, and you leave. And nobody ever says, wow, I really felt better because you were here. Or look how you've changed my life. I'm such a good person now because you showed up. Never happens. 20 years later, somebody might say, hey, I remember you. You showed up. You know what? That's being a good person. That's being a benefit to others. Showing up. Being an example. Having something to say that they hadn't heard before. Giving them... Grist for the mill, as Ramdas might say. Something new to think about, you know? To unlock that rigid self-view and understanding of life and see the flow and the complexity. If you can do that for people, it gives them a chance to grow and be more than who they are. And, and the problem with life is we, we never stop growing, which may sound weird, to be a problem, but have you ever thought about this phrase, literally, I'm growing old? Oh, man. You never stop growing. You just grow old. And then you grow into death. And then you grow into rebirth. And you keep growing again until it's time to grow old. Man. Okay. So being a benefit to others allows us to understand the spiritual energy necessary to complete this path. And you got to hold on to it. you got to use it. Patience and forbearance is the next one. The ability to endure personal hardship and patience with others. Now, lately I've been having a real problem with patience and lines. Because I go to some of these supermarkets, and you know, in L.A., Nobody shops alone. You know, they got grandma, they got the four kids, a couple grandchildren, and they're buying milk. You know, and the line is full of this one family. And there I am with my cat food saying, I just want to go through and buy my cat food. But I got to wait there. And then they have to figure out how much it is. And then they got to look in their wallet and they got to find it. And there I'm sitting going, oh man, I don't know how much more of this I can take. It's hell being single. So, so now, in the last couple of weeks, I've, I've, I've got a new technique now. Now it's sort of like, it's not equanimity, but it's indifference. And I just sort of wait there until it's my turn. And I don't criticize the line. I no longer feel like the line police, you know, directing people how to be more efficient in line. And, and there I am, and then it's my turn to pay, and I, I casually search for my money and, you know, count it out to myself. And you know what the clerk says to me? She says, it's a dollar more. And I knew it was a dollar more, 
But I was just sort of being relaxed about the whole thing and not getting involved in the line. And she looked at me and saw my gray hair and figured I was too old to figure out how much more I needed to pay. So what do I say to her? Thank you. And I give my dollar. You know, if you're too fast, they criticize you. If you're too slow, you're too old. Where's a happy medium? In line. Wow. And then some people, if you go to the place downtown, Alameda Philippe's, okay? You know, they got really good sandwiches there and some other stuff, and they got like 10 lines, you know? And you go in and you try to find the shortest line. When families go in there, each family member picks a line. And the first one to the counter, they all migrate to that person. And I'm thinking, being single, there's so many disadvantages, you know? You just don't have the family filling up every line to be first. Wow. So I'm practicing patience with the line. I'm also practicing patience with myself because sometimes and as I'm getting older now, things just don't work the way they used to. I'm knocking things over a lot. You know, all of a sudden there'll be like a glass and I'll just knock it over. And I'm thinking, how could I just knock it over? <laughs> And then I blame the cats because they always knock stuff over, and, and they're affecting me now. I'm becoming a cat, <laughs> knocking stuff over. But then I thought to myself, maybe this is what's happening. Maybe I'm losing the feeling of my body, that well-defined me and where it ends and the universe where it begins is now starting to merge together a little bit more than I anticipated. So I'm, I'm not as well-defined as I move around with my body, and I run into things, and sometimes I just drop things. And I drop it, I'm going, what the hell? And then it rolls under the table, and you can't find it for two days. And I'm thinking, if I had planned to do that, I couldn't have done it. How could it just happen all by itself? You know, so my floor is a little messy, but the cats like stuff on the floor, because they just move it around, you know? And it works out sort of fine. But it's difficult to be patient with yourself sometimes because sometimes we expect too much, you know? And now with the heat, next week it's going to be almost 100. And I understand that sometimes our mental efficiency drops by like 30% or something. So I'm getting ready for next week. I'm going to be 30% less efficient than I am today. Man, how am I going to live through that? Will people forgive me? Can I tell them, it's too hot, I can't do it? No, you got to do it, you know? And then, have you ever been in a place where they only have one screen and you're paying? You know, and the clerk behind the counter says $10.88, and you look at the back of the register to see what she just said, and there's nothing there. And they're always so polite and quiet. I just wish they'd yell at me sometimes and say, 1088. So I could hear it. So because I can't hear it well, and because I can't see the screen, I just sort of hope that it's the right amount. <laughs> and it never is. No, sir, you're $2 short. Oh, I'm sorry. I was looking for the screen. So I give them two ducks more. So being patient with yourself. You're going to find all sorts of adversarial comments and perspectives against you because you're not who you think you are or how good you used to be. And you just sort of have to go and say, yeah, I guess that's how it works. The older I get, the more years on this earth, I don't necessarily get better. 
I sometimes get worse. And eventually, you're going to walk in someplace and not even know where you are. And if you've meditated long enough, it'll be perfect. I'm so happy I'm here. And they're going to say, well, where are you? I, I don't know, but it really feels good to be here because there's air conditioning. <laughs> so the last one today is the acceptance of truth. The acceptance of truth. Truth about suffering and truth about yourself. Truth about being selfish, responsible for your own unhappiness, and truth about being mortal. Well, most of you young people out there aren't going to be thinking about your mortality as much as uh, some of us old people are. But I was in the bank just two days ago in Santa Monica, and I wanted to know if I had a contact person on my bank account so when I died, they contact the person and say, hey, this guy just died, and he's got some money, and do you want it? Because I've heard just, you know, if, if they can't contact anybody, then the state gets it. And I didn't want the state to get my money. So I wasn't sure how to be truthful about this. I didn't know really how to approach it in a way that made everybody feel comfortable. So I'm talking to the, to the bank person, and I said this. You know... If I die tomorrow, is there a contact person? And she just, as if, you know, I had some terminal illness, or I just found out about something terrible. No, I said, I'm not going to die tomorrow. But just if I were to die tomorrow, is there any contact person on my account? She says, no, there's not. I said, well, I, I'm going to put one there. I'm going to put my brother there. So I went over to the person who's in charge of that. And she was so kind. It was like being in a funeral parlor. <laughs> Please sit down. Tell us about it. You know, like, I just want somebody to get my money after I die. Are you feeling okay, sir? I feel fine. Thank you. So we got it all worked out. I gave him the information. Then I called my brother. And I said to my brother, you know, I just gave your name for a contact person on my bank account. So when I die, they're going to contact you. Are you okay? Do you feel okay? <laughs> yes, I'm fine. Thank you. I don't feel like I'm going to die. But you never know, you know. And so, okay, so he said, well, good. He said, I'll make sure that I get the money, and how do you want to die? What do you want to do? I said, I want to be cremated and put in the ocean. Yep, I'll do that for you. I'm your brother. I'll get it done. Thank you very much. You know, and it was just so weird to speak that kind of truth about your own mortality and hear the response from people who don't think about theirs. And are surprised that you're even thinking about death. But in Buddhism, man, we think about death all the time. It's our co-pilot. And we're just going along going, hey, how, how am I doing today? So far, so good. But you're going on the 405. Be prepared. You know, okay. And I, it brings back a, a story about my friend Mary who worked in a hospice in Northern California. And because she worked in a hospice, people died all the time. So I was surprised when she said, I had five people die today. And I said, whoa, that's a lot of people. She said, that's not the half of it. You wouldn't believe. It was a miracle. I said, what's the miracle? She said, not one of the five thought today was the day. So even if you're old and sick and in a hospice, Today is not the day. 
So you're surprised, but the Buddha told us keep death on your co-pilot because, as your co-pilot, because death could happen today. And what that does for you is it forces you to engage in your life in a very special way. So if you're talking to friends or family on the phone, and this could be your last day, you don't want to hang up on them or get them angry about what you said. You want to be cordial. You want them to have a good last thought if this is your last day. So I think the Buddha was really wise in encouraging us to think about our own mortality. But he also said, and I know if you're a secular Buddhist, you're not going to hear this, but he also said, hey, we got rebirth. This is not your only or last life. This is just one of the many times you've suffered. You'll get to suffer again and again and again because you're going to be reborn so many times until finally you get nirvana and not have to do it anymore. You go, wow, you know? It always goes back to suffering. It always goes back to suffering. So I'm so glad the Buddha just didn't stop there. And he said, hey, listen, I know how you can end your suffering. And I know how you can help others in their suffering. And I have given you the Eightfold Path, which is a prescription to be followed. But there isn't one thing I can do for you directly to make you enlightened because you have to do it yourself. And when I read something like that for the first time in Buddhism, I felt so good about that because it meant that I didn't have to surrender myself to a supreme being or a particular philosophy to understand it and become free with it. I had an actual practice to do that I was in charge of. And my teachers were simply reference points. They weren't my gurus or my Zen masters. They were reference points. And they were walking along the same path I was walking on. And they could give me a few insights into what they found to be true. And maybe I could incorporate those insights into my life and find my own path because that's the only path I could ever find. And the irony of finding your own path is you're not even there. You're not I, me, or mine. It's not your path. It is the path. 